Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Books are rather like London buses. You wait ages and ages, and then they all seem to come together. I've been waiting for a good book on the monopolization of American life. And all of a sudden, we have three excellent books. First, uh, last year, we got Matt Stoller's Goliath. Then we got David Dian's Monopolized. David was on the show um, earlier this week. And now we have uh, perhaps the best of all, the a really interesting book about the crisis of monopolies in America, uh, recovering our freedom from big ag, big tech, and big money. Break them up. Uh, Zephyr Teachout is a well-known New York-based politician, activist, lawyer, done many, many things in her, in her life, uh, a remarkable amount of things, actually. Uh, and uh, the book, Break Em Up, is prefaced by, uh, I think, one of her friends, or certainly political conrades, um, uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, Zephyr, was it hard to get Bernie to do the preface for the book? Well, I really wanted him to, <laughs> so I was, uh, uh, I wasn't pushy about it, but I asked a few times and it was an extraordinary moment. I was so excited. He has been a real um, inspiration in his courage and his thinking and, you know, really for so long um, been an incredible leader on taking on corporate power and calling out the lie about it. I remember way back in 94, I actually, I'm from Vermont. So he was my uh, Congress member uh, in, in the early nineties. Um, and back in 94, he was railing against hospital mergers and the, and the long-term impacts at the same time as, as demanding Medicare for all. So um, I, I was thrilled that he did it. But, and it's a great uh, introduction. Great introduction, although uh, not as great as the book itself. You outline this crisis of American capitalism. You talk about the way in which wireless and food and retail and defense contracting and home internet and books and oil and every other industry almost has been uh, changed, dramatically controlled now by tiny monopolies. Uh, talk briefly, uh, Zephyr, about that. Is it the entire American economy that has become monopolized? No, I mean, we know there are incredible areas of, of uh, flourishing, but on the whole, we are very quickly moving towards greater concentration. So there are some bright spots, but just for those of you watching or listening, think about your own industry. Um, uh, excitingly, podcasting is not as concentrated, for instance, as a lot of other areas in um in, in media, so there, there are exceptions. But when you think about, uh, you know, you mentioned it, but office supplies or um, pharma, 
um, you see this just incredible roll up. In the last 10 years, we've allowed 500,000 mergers worldwide. And a lot of it happens without us really noticing. Um, we look at the political pages for what's happening in politics, but you know, one of the arguments of the book is, well, maybe we should understand this more like Shakespeare and say, well, when Dow and DuPont are having a marriage, that's a political marriage. That's not just an economic one. And we should pay a lot more political attention to these, uh, to these mergers. Well, not even William Shakespeare um, has perhaps some of your linguistic dexterity. You come up with a wonderful term to describe the impact of monopolies on American life. You, the word is chickenization. You didn't get that from Shakespeare, did you, Zephyr? No, I got it from a wonderful writer, uh, Christopher Leonard, who wrote the book, The Meat Racket, which I recommend. And you mentioned two other writers who are also good friends of mine at the beginning of the show, um, uh, Matt Stoller and David Diane. And Christopher Leonard and a small group of us for about 10 years have been uh, shaking people's shoulders about um, uh, uh, monopolies and the threat of monopolies. And so just to refer back to your opening, I think we are at a flowering moment for that, uh, where the early seeds really came after the crash of 2008, and now people are starting to write about it more. But to, to speak about chickenization, uh, Chris uh, went deep into the chicken industry and then learned that this was a phrase used by people in the um, pork and beef industry to describe how they were stealing tactics from what Tyson and Pilgrims was doing to gain control over producers in other areas of meat. So you would say, oh, the beef industry is getting chickenized, which is to say big distributors have figured out a system where they sit atop the market, direct all the activities of the chicken farmers, put them in a black box where they can't talk to their neighbors, have to sign an arbitration contract, get paid different amounts every month, and live in a state of rational paranoia um, where when they have a bad week, is it because they might have ticked off Tyson in some way? Or is it because they're of, of the weather? Um, and it's a really subservient position. I, I, I love the term because, of course, it's about chicken farming, but chickenization in, embeds in it the concept of fear. And I feel like too many um, uh, elite economists don't talk about fear, humiliation, dignity, all the things that are sort of central to our lives as people and reduce everything to numbers when the economic facts are, are human facts. Yeah, one of the things I really liked and found quite chilling about your uh, chapter on chickenization was your introduction of a, another Englishman, uh, the late uh, 18th century uh, social thinker Jeremy Bentham and his idea of the panopticon of a yeah. society where everything is watched all the time. We've had a lot of discussion on this, particularly with Shoshana Zuboff, who's been a, right. a guest on this show on surveillance capitalism. But your notion of chickenization goes beyond Google and Facebook and Amazon. This is not just digital. This is the entire economy, isn't it? Because once you have monopoly companies, they're able to watch everyone inside and outside the internet. Absolutely. There's a sort of tech, the language of tech plays this weird role in our culture. We think, oh, tech is one category and other things are other categories. Um, but John Deere is doing a lot of spying right now on its farmers and their, their, uh, the weather patterns. Um, all, uh, and, and Zuboff has done a good job of laying out this is not just big tech. 
One area that I think we should all watch and actually intervene before it happens is um, uh, Seamless um, Uber Eats, the platforms mm. that right now just seem like, oh, kind of convenient platforms and platform fights that, yeah, they pay their delivery workers badly. Think of what the role of these platforms are starting to play in controlling restaurants. If you're a restaurant and you're kicked off of these big platforms and you rely on 20% of your income for takeout or during this pandemic, 70% of your income for takeout, if you're not on this platform, that's a death sentence. And so basically if Seamless says, oh, think of you. What's your favorite restaurant, Andrew? Just or one. Uh, well, they're unique ones in Berkeley. Picante in Berkeley, a Mexican okay. restaurant. Okay. So let's say a Picante says, okay, um, we would love to have you on our uh, platform, Picante, but you do need to um, share with us all the details about how your restaurant works. And by the way, we want you to use our affiliated consulting services and our affiliated uh uh, ketchup company, you know, we're not there yet. <laughs> but basically, Picante may be so lucky that it can sneak out of that. But most restaurants are going to have to do whatever um, these these platforms tell us, uh, tell them to. And this is, it's, it's more feudal than, uh, it, you know, it has real reminiscent of um, a, a sort of a, a feudal political system, mm. where there's an economic relationship, but also a political relationship. We've actually, we, we, we've talked actually about the return of American capitalism to a kind of feudalism as well. So that fits in very well to that narrative. Yeah. Um, Zephyr, let's explore the politics of this. You're, um, you're on the left of the Democratic Party and you trace this back to Reagan and his antitrust uh, uh, legislation. Is this a political problem essentially that the, the antitrust infrastructure of the late 19th century got pulled down by Reagan? Yes. <laughs> uh, and and I, it's a, it's a, I tell a short version of the history. There's a more complex history there. But um, basically you see Reagan and his, uh, uh, his gang come in with a few different big priorities. We know about their deregulatory push, um, but they have, they're clearly part of the backlash to the civil rights movement. And that's clearly a central driver um, in the uh, uh, sort of the Reagan moment, um, as well as anxiety about the tumult of the sixties um, uh, as, as some of his, uh, his close colleagues would, would really criticize that and say, what are these people doing agitating? You know, this real um, discomfort with um, activism. And a lot of his folks came from California and really hated the activism in California. But what's interesting is they came along with an anti-civil rights, pro-incarceration and get rid of antitrust were all top priorities. And I'm really interested in the ways in which race and anti-monopoly interact and I don't actually think I get to the bottom of this, but I, I raise questions about like, why are these two coming together? Um, is, is it a bargain where basically there are big corporations who are willing to uh, accept the racism of the Reagan um, administration because he's going to let them get away with all kinds of things in the consolidation arena? Or is it another kind of bargain? Um, is it an ideological position of Mies? who sees, who sort of brings an authoritarian 
top-down approach towards everything. I actually, these are some questions I raised in the book, not answers. But to me, the tragedy isn't just Reagan, it's what came after. Because then Bill Clinton didn't revive antitrust. Uh, Bush didn't revive antitrust. Obama didn't revive antitrust. In fact, they all kept the basic same framework, which is, oh yes, we have antitrust laws, but they are these sort of technical violations for situations in which consumer prices might rise. Antitrust is not about having communities with lots of small and medium-sized businesses. It's not about freedom. It's not about the threat of private power replacing democratic power. They basically just accepted this, I think, frankly, bizarre understanding of what antitrust law is about. And this is Democrats and Republicans. So when you talk about the politics of this, right now, there is an anti growing anti-monopoly um, energy on the left. There's growing anti-monopoly energy on the right at the grassroots level. Um, uh, even in the hearing last week, you saw that people were asking similar questions. My audience here is, I hope people from all political backgrounds read it, but my audience here is the left because honestly, progressives just have not done enough activism around this. And you may think, oh, I'm an anti-monopolist, um, but when's the last time you were engaged in an action to break up a big company? Probably never. Uh, maybe you wrote a petition to stop Monsanto Bayer, but that's just one of thousands of different efforts. When was the last time you said, I'm gonna engage with this um, congressional candidate and not with this one because this one is an anti-monopolist? It's like we're sort of ignoring what's happening with power. And let me tell you, these giants are not ignoring it. They are all about consolidation. Uh, Zephyr, I know you've got a, a, a child uh, asleep no, perhaps asleep. at the moment, um, but you maybe put your fingers metaphorically over his ears because we don't normally allow swearing on this show. But um, you, you say in the book, and I'm quoting you, that we need a, a fuck off economy. What does that mean? You mean essentially telling the monopolists and the monopolies to fuck off? Uh, well, well, that too. Um, I got this phrase from Phil Longman, um, who's a wonderful anti-monopolist writer who writes about healthcare. Um, when I was asking him, as I think we all need to be asking each other a lot more, what kind of world do we want to live in? We know it's not this, but what do markets look like? And he had this phrase which really struck with me because what he's saying is, is we need an economy where whether you are a wage laborer or run a small business, um, run a podcast. <laughs> um, so this is to your, the people who work for you, Andrew. <laughs> oh yeah, all the millions of people, I'm a monopolist. Yes, yes. <laughs> is that, that we want an economy where you, you know in your heart, any day you could say, fuck off, and go get another right. job and uh, still survive. You have and this wonderful anecdote, actually, of this in, in your favorite diner in in um, <laughs> in, uh, in New York City, where the owner is 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 enjoys telling people to fuck off if he doesn't like them. Yeah, <laughs> and what it means is that, like, if you just hold that in your heart and you say, "Oh, I hate my job, but I could leave." <laughs> It changes your whole relationship to work instead of, I hate my job and I can't ever leave. And so if they're spying on my political conversations, I better say the right thing and I better not, you know, organize with my colleagues because this is it. This is the only thing I can hold on to. And when you have only a handful of employers and you know they're kind of friends with each other, 
And by the mm. way, non-competes are the formal version of, no, you can't go work anywhere else, non-compete agreements. But if, if, if you say, oh, well, I live in a town with three employers, and if I say no to one, they're all going to blacklist me. Well, you, you actually then have lost an essential part of human freedom. And I, I, it's essential for union workers, too. If you want to really go and negotiate with um, whether it's Amazon or Bayer or DuPont, you got to know that you can go somewhere else, that your workforce has other choices. And when you don't, you're kind of an Agatha Christie, then there were none. I'm the one about to get murdered moment. Yeah. And I think that the, the key word actually in the subtitle of your book is recovering our freedom. It, this is a book about freedom and a, a narrative about freedom. Uh, Zephyr, I, I get your point about grassroots activism. And of course, that's obviously important. Um, but you're a political insider within the Democratic Party, as I said, on the left. You ran quite powerfully against uh, Cuomo uh, to, to, to govern New York, and, and, and you're obviously close to Bernie Sanders. Is this an issue now that is being discussed, for example, within the, 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 the Biden uh, team? Are they ad addressing this issue of monopolization? Um we don't know where they're going to come out. Well, if you don't, nobody does. You must have an idea, though. Are, are there people on the left within the, uh, within the Biden team who are pushing for this? Um, so I have some sense of a few of the people who are involved in the anti-monopoly team within the economics team. Um, I'd like to see more people who bring a strong anti-monopoly view. Um, I'd like to think that, for instance, that he is listening to uh, Warren, Mm. Um, who has been a, a very strong anti-monopolist. Uh, um, when I say it's a question mark, though, I'm, I'm pretty serious. I think uh, that he hasn't talked about it a lot. Um, he seems to be, it's not an area where you say, oh, this is just the Biden way, because he's always done it that way. Um, and uh, unless it is non-engagement, which would be a real problem. I mean, this is, a, this is a real opportunity here. So I actually think this is an area where uh, there's enough of a blank page that we could see some really good things coming out of it. And I am certainly using whatever levers I have to push for that. And I know others are as well, but that's where it connects to grassroots activism. Um, more uh, and if, if Joe Biden is watching, because I don't suppose he's yes. got much else to do in his basement somewhere, in, uh, in Delaware or wherever he is, he, he might think, well, I'm going to scare off those, those supposedly uh, moderate suburban voters with talk of monopolization. Convince him otherwise, therefore. Why, why should Biden go with this argument in the election, which still seems quite radical, the idea that we need to break them up? You know, corporate monopolies are so hated that a poll a couple of years showed, ago showed that they were more hated than Wall Street. <laughs> People get it. Politicians are way behind on this one. People feel like totally, they uh, certainly don't like their cable companies. So if you want to start somewhere, right. start with people's cable companies. Um, but, the, but the other thing is that as a serious matter of economic policy, we are in a, a terrible economic straits and um, betting on a handful of fragile uh, big companies and private equity is a terrible bet. We are going to have to work hard for recovery and recovery is going to require something more than this top heavy financialization heavy, uh, uh, you know, uh, big company 
extracting value out of the economy. That's not a way to have a thriving economy. And so I would say to Biden, just skip ahead. Look at what FDR did in the second term of his presidency. He made anti-monopoly central to his second term because he saw that for economic recovery, you actually needed to take on these fortresses that were holding back recovery. So I would argue on uh, the grounds that rural areas, urban areas everywhere needs a much greater flowering of uh, freedom and economic activity. But also it's good politics, Joe. It's good politics. Yeah, it may be good politics, Joe. And if you're watching, you have an open invitation to come on the show and perhaps even to discuss this with Zephyr. Uh, finally, Zephyr, um, you end on a, on a very optimistic note. You imagine America in 2040 in a post-monopoly world, a world where your grassroots has effectively reshaped American economics. What does this look like? Well, it's a world in which um, there's just a lot more human dignity and freedom. So uh, there are some big national programs like the Green New Deal, but that have been implemented in a local bottom-up way. Uh, we have uh, national health care. And by the way, I, I come from the left, and I think there's this like weird tendency to think you can be anti-monopolist or in favor of national programs. It's like, no, you can actually, you can and should do both. And I engage in those questions um, later in the book. Um, but it's an area where people... You have a lot more unionized jobs because um, uh, workers have relatively more power compared to big corporations. And you don't have companies uh, like uh, Google controlling public education or Bill Gates dictating education policy. So, um, uh, you know, one of the things we haven't talked a lot about but is very relevant to your work is that we have Google, Facebook, and Amazon taking over the intellectual life of our country and our communications infrastructure. And that's really, really dangerous. So um, big tech is not just a threat because it's, uh, it's monopolizing and it's taking money out. It's a real threat because it's basically controlling the way that we talk to each other. And um, we really need to move away from that. Zephyr, everyone should read your book, Break Them Up, Recovering Our Freedom from Big Ag, Big Tech, and Big Money. I think it's an important book, and it's certainly an important moment, I think, on the left where monopolization and the, the problems of monopolies are becoming increasingly the focus of, of the left side of the Democratic Party. Uh, what else should people be reading in these strange times, in the, in the hot summer of 2020, Zephyr? What are, you, what are you reading, and what would you advise other people to read beyond your book? Well, I'm going to suggest a book that's totally from a different world. Um, uh, I, I, I do want to put in a plug in for uh, David Dianne's new book, Monopolized. We are theoretically competitors, but truly working on the same uh, project. And, and they're, they're related books, but they're really different books with different focuses. But, but the book that I want, I suggest people read is a, to sit in one place and read um, Happy Days by Beckett. Why? And read it out loud. Because in this moment where people are totally stuck, um, feel like they can't, you know, for a lot of reasons, can't go out, can't be with others, and are in an internal monologue, I think Beckett, more than anybody I know, has captured an incredible uh, portrait of both the highs and lows of the modern internal dialogue and the challenges of uh, the, the, the play, for those of you who don't know, is a woman sitting uh, 
buried in sand uh, and talking out loud um, and narrating her life going from the mundane to the profound. And it's very, very funny. And I think uh, you will find it funny, strange, and open up new windows on, on the, the both trapped and free human soul. Well, Zephyr, you get my vote next time you run in California. I think you're probably the only politician in the Western world to, to recommend that we read Samuel Beckett. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.